Dr. Mona Fahom is a naturopathic practitioner who specializes in women's health, nutrition, and digestive concerns at her clinic in Seattle, Washington. She is also on the medical team at Symphony Natural Health, the makers of Feminescence. Feminescence is an award-winning natural product clinically proven to balance and regulate hormone production in women. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into PCOS, endometriosis, and other female hormonal imbalances, the best natural supplements, if there's any medications that are worthwhile to try. We're just going to go all over the place, all over hormones today, so this is a great one. So if you're female and you have hormonal imbalances or you think you might or you have any sort of menstrual problems whatsoever, this episode is for you. Welcome to the Kaka TV Podcast, your source for all things health, happiness, and beauty. Dr. Mona, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. So I want to talk a little bit about PCOS first. So why does PCOS present so differently in women? And do you think that it should be split up into different types? I believe PCOS presents so differently in people because it's a constellation and a syndrome. It is not a single disease process. There's so many different hormonal components between insulin resistance, and the cystic formation and the hormone issues and the testosterone um, issues that it's bound to present differently in people simply because of its complexity. Um, It could be that over time we end up seeing some different categories. We know some women never have ovarian cysts, so the name is not really all that accurate, and they really just have the androgen excess and those other pieces. At the same time, for me and my functional medicine naturopathic brain, it's kind of the, it's still the same constellation of biochemistry that's happening. So I don't I don't personally need it split up into different categories. That's a nice labeling system for medicine and ICD-10 codes. But from a practitioner point of view, I'm still working all those same pathways, no matter what the phenotype or the end presentation that's happening, the chemistry behind the scenes is what I'm more interested in. Back when I found out I had PCOS, it was only because I went ahead and ordered the test myself directly from a lab. I was given the runaround. Doctors told me I needed lifelong antibiotics for acne, hormonal birth control pills for heavy and painful periods, and most doctors don't even investigate anything until you have fertility issues later in life. So why are traditional doctors still not able to properly diagnose PCOS? It is extremely frustrating that on average it takes at least two years and multiple health professionals before women get a diagnosis of PCOS. I think part of that is the system, the broken system that most of us work within. I'm in an insurance-based model and testing is expensive. You're, you have the, I don't, but typically docs have a five-minute visit. You can't get much done in that time. And so they're relegated to, oh, this is your problem. Here's a solution. And it's just a drug therapy solution to suppress symptoms and get you out of the office so they can get to the next person. Not any fault of their own, but it's it's a you know it's a result of a broken system. So that's one piece of it. I hope that more and more, and I think it's being recognized more and more in all doctors' offices that this needs to be diagnosed and, and caught earlier. And unfortunately, Western medicine just doesn't have a lot of tools for it. So yeah, it's like, oh, if we put you on a birth control pill, you're good to go. You're, you're fixed, but you're not really fixed. It's not fixing the underlying problem. And then you go to want to have a baby, and as soon as you get off that pill, all the problems come flooding back to you. So we really have to start catching it earlier. I am a big fan of um, using the diagnostic criteria that I have medically laid out before me a little bit loosely. I don't I will order the labs ahead of time, get the testosterone, um, get an ultrasound if it seems indicated, but even if the cysts aren't there, if everything else fits, then I'm going to start treating it as if. I think that's one of the problems with our medical system is we wait until there is a full-blown problem instead of thinking upstream and thinking about, okay, we're already headed down a path that may not be so great, so what can I do to intervene? And that's where natural medicine and functional medicine can step in and, and start looking at those upstream pathways and catching this 
far earlier than infertility. Um, I, I've seen it in teenage girls that I'm like, ooh, this road is not looking good. So let's get you started on some support now so that hopefully, and this is where I'll never have the data to know that we've presented, prevented it necessarily, but hopefully if we're paying attention in our younger adolescent gals and 20-somethings, we can prevent some of these problems further down the road because catching things earlier is far easier to treat than later. If someone with PCOS just straightly listened to their doctor, they got on birth control pills, but they continue to eat lots of processed foods, carbs, sugar, use cosmetics with endocrine disruptors, are they fixing the issue even temporarily or is the PCOS in the background causing damage and increasing risk down the line? They're masking it, and so they're not having the irregular cycles, and they're not having the excess hair growth, the acne. That stuff is kind of all controlled, but I would venture to say that the damage is still happening in the background. The birth control pill may be helping on some level with managing some of that insulin resistance because the more testosterone and androgens in the system, they worsen the insulin resistance, so they feed off of each other. So I wouldn't say that if someone started the medication route, they're not it may be helpful in some regards simply because you're lowering some risks and you are keeping some androgens in check, which would be worsening the insulin resistance, but you are not fixing the problem. And that insulin resistance is still stewing in the background and it's still causing damage in the background. So while you're helping and maybe getting a little bit of management, it is not the whole picture by any stretch of the imagination. So I was watching a vlog of a girl in Dubai, she was very young, went to her gynecologist, she had painful periods, they did testing. And instead of just birth control pills over there, they gave her nutrition advice. They told her something like, uh, you needed to eat low to moderate protein, no sugar, low carbs. But in the US, there's still no mention about diet from a traditional doctor. How important is diet for PCOS? I'd say diet is more important than basically anything else. Um, I love my herbs. I love my functional medicine. I, you know, will use pharmaceuticals when they're medically indicated because at times they are, but diet and lifestyle, this is a, an issue of the environment around you and diet and lifestyle. And you have far more control over PCOS and endometriosis and PMS and all of these, these conditions with diet and lifestyle more than anything else. So cleaning up the endocrine disruptors, using resources like ewg.org to clean up your cosmetics and all of that stuff, getting the exercise right, getting the diet right, and um, managing stress are the most paramount and the baseline foundation of every treatment plan that I put together. Um, and I think there's probably multiple reasons that I don't think I can guess as to why someone in Dubai, their doctors go to that more. I do think there's a tendency in other countries to be more open to that kind of thing. There's a lot more traditional medical world medicines out there. Um, I know, you know, in India, a lot of the times medical doctors, they're mixing kind of some Ayurvedic and conventional stuff together just because it's a part of the culture. And unfortunately, our culture is to use double-blind placebo-controlled studies only, and it's changing, but it's not, we're not quite there yet. But more and more MDs I know are talking to people about diet and lifestyle. The issue is how do you turn that into action? They can tell you to eat better and that you need to exercise, but they don't have the time or the resources or the staffing to help someone actually make those changes. And so we need to see more coaches and more uh, nutritionists and more indies, I would, I would say, in those Western medical establishments um, to actually help make those changes happen so it's not just lip service. What kind of like basic diet and lifestyle tips should someone with PCOS practice? So generally speaking, I, I mean, because we have insulin resistance and or worse, you know, some prediabetes going on, it's going to be a low glycemic, moderate to high protein whole foods diet. So what do all those things mean? I mean, low glycemic, many of your listeners are probably all familiar with, but low glycemic is basically a measure of how quickly a food is going to increase blood sugar levels and an insulin response in the body. And so if you think about what is low carb or low glycemic, it's going to be something that's high protein, higher protein, higher fat, and or not a lot of simple carbs. So the grains I try to minimize for people, 
or gluten-free just depends on what where people are at with other health issues. Lots of fruits and vegetables because those are complex carbohydrates. They've got lots of fiber in them, and fiber slows down the sugar release in the system. Protein, obviously, is protein. So meats, beans, all those kinds of things, nuts, those are high protein, good fats. And so they don't have as much sugar in them, so they don't uh, create an insulin response or sugar response in the body. And then, of course, cutting the processed foods. I mean, we all know that they're laden with chemicals and hormones and everything else. So I'm always pushing people to eat. If it doesn't look like what it came out of the ground or off a tree as, then you need to have a second thought about whether or not that should be in your body. And for lifestyle tips, do you think meditation or some form of stress relief would really help the hormones? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are tons of studies out there showing how when you have increased stress, that actually changes um, changes and can shunt progesterone production to cortisol production. So if you look at a big thing of biochemical pathways, DHEA actually gets turned into, or sorry, not DHEA, pregnenolone, um, gets turned into progesterone, and that can either go down the hormone pathways or it can get moved into cortisol. So when you're under a bunch of stress and your body thinks that it's under stress and needs more cortisol, you're literally going to worsen the whole PCOS situation by lowering progesterone and creating more cortisol. And so whenever we can decrease cortisol, increase relaxation, increase that parasympathetic response, that is going to impact the hormones quite directly. This isn't just about relaxing a little bit and taking it easy. I mean, this is truly changing biochemistry. I know that I have many of my patients, even if you find 10 minutes in a day, that can improve things. And there was a really large study that found uh, yoga and mindfulness-based practices do reduce cortisol, blood pressure, and blood sugar, among a bunch of other blood markers. So we know from a ton of scientific research and literature that yoga, mindfulness, breathing techniques, whatever, meditation, all of that stuff changes biochemistry. And if we start changing cortisol, we start affecting all the other hormones. And so I often find myself, I I work in Seattle, or that's where my practice is. And so I've obviously got a lot of tech people in my practice, and they are all stressed out. And they're sitting in a cubicle all day long in front of a computer, working 50, 60 hours a week. And I tell them that I don't even care if they have to just go into a bathroom stall for 10 minutes. Um, and that's the only way they're going to get some peace and quiet and not be called into a meeting or something. I want them in that bathroom stall, left alone, <laughs> breathing for 10 minutes with some you know, app or something just to do some breath work. And that improves their stress load tremendously, what I see clinically. Are there any prescription medications that you found to be safe and worthwhile to take when you have PCOS? I'm generally trying to get people off of their pharmaceutical medications. I will say that in some situations, they are really important. Um, As a naturopathic doc in Seattle and Washington State, I can actually, I have prescriptive rights. And so I will prescribe metformin or uh, birth control pills or, or spironolactone at times. It's all a degree of necessity. If I have someone who has, a, you know, a severe weight problem and they're verging on diabetes, not just pre-diabetes, sometimes you need to put the Band-Aid on and just put them together with the duct tape until we can work on those other foundational pieces. So I like to think about those pharmaceuticals as helpful in those acute stages, getting things under control, and then the whole time. I'm working to mitigate any side effects from those medications or nutrient depletions that those medications cause, and we're working on the foundational pieces to start minimizing or pulling them off of those meds. But there's definitely a balancing act in medicine as far as, you know, there's research showing that if we put people on metformin earlier than later, we actually reduce their risk of switching over to needing insulin. So if someone who has a ton of risk factors to turn into a full-on diabetic, I have to constantly weigh what are our risks and benefits. But the goal is to always reverse some of that negative biochemistry that's happening for them so that we can get them back onto diet lifestyle, herbs at the most, nutrients and nutraceuticals and supplements if we need to as well. And what are your favorite supplements for PCOS? Great question. My favorites are, I mean, we have to address three different things. So we have to address the insulin resistance. So for that, for me, is chromium and cinnamon and alpha lipoic acid and green tea. There's some great combo products that I like that kind of wrap all that stuff up together and magnesium. 
Um, magnesium is just, it's a cofactor for hundreds of different reactions in our body and hugely important. So those are my first go-tos for the insulin resistance piece. And then next, I usually add inositol, which is great for um, sensitizing uh, cells for insulin and FSH, follicular stimulating hormone. So it's a sugar that your body already produces, but we can give it in a supplement form to improve some of that sensitivity to insulin and follicular or follicle stimulating hormone in the ovaries. And then as far as herbs, my my first go-to is always going to be um, maca, namely the feminescence product, because they're higher potency and I know where they're coming from and all of that. But the feminescence and maca, that herb from Peru, acts on the whole HPA axis, so the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And I think in its amazing ability to manage cortisol, we get a ton of downstream effects. And I see people's cycles regulating. I see the testosterone levels coming down, the estrogen and progesterone ratios looking better. And so those are my, those are my, that's my first line of herbs and supplements to use. And we're going to talk more about feminescence later, but let's switch over to endometriosis. What is endometriosis? How common is it? And why is that also hard to get a diagnosis for? So endometriosis, I mean, primarily it's hard to get a diagnosis for because it takes surgery to get a definitive diagnosis. And as you can imagine, no doc is is one for wanting to be like, oh, yeah, let's just go in and have an exploratory surgery. So that is one of the biggest problems with endometriosis and how how it doesn't get diagnosed for years and years. In short, endometriosis is endometrial or lining of the uterus tissue that gets displaced from the uterus where it's supposed to be and it implants in other areas, whether that's on the bladder or the intestines. So somewhere in that abdominal cavity, typically, we see implants of the wrong tissue type and they're still trying to figure out how and why it happens. We know certain things increase in lower risks for it. But it is an estrogen dependent. So if you can imagine you are through your menstrual cycle, estrogen's building in the system, and then you have a period and then it falls and then it builds up again. If you've got tissue that is supposed to build up and then shed, but it's in the wrong spot, not just in the uterus, that's going to cause pain and cramping and fluid in the abdomen where it's not supposed to be. And it's going to cycle with you every single month. And so that's why it can be just... A, a terrible painful condition it's considered a, considered an inflammatory disease because the more estrogen cycling the system estrogen literally triggers production of some inflammatory molecules those inflammatory molecules then go mess up with your pain fibers that your brain is trying to figure out what's going on here and so we see pain sensitization so there's pain but it's like it gets magnified by the brain. So the perception of that pain is even worse in in some of the people who really suffer with endo. So we think there's about 10% um, of women in reproductive age who have endometriosis. And it usually takes, this is really sad, but seven to 12 years after symptoms for an actual diagnosis. And some women, we just go with clinical diagnosis. Like you have terrible, severe, heavy periods and all this pain. Um, we will often just presume people have endo. And then the worst cases usually are the ones who go in for exploratory laparoscopy to find those implants, remove them, and, and, and then down that whole road. What are some traditional medical treatments for endometriosis once you have your diagnosis? So the first one would be, can we go in and can we remove those implants? So go in, you know, laparoscopically, which is great now. So you're not doing an open, you know, abdomen, you're just doing it with all cameras and and small technology. So actually going into removing lesions. Now, the problem with that is 50, I think it's 50% of women are going to recur about five years after that. So it's not a permanent fix. They'll grow back. The other um, treatments traditionally and pharmaceutically would be to basically induce menopause. So there's GnRH or gonadotropic releasing hormone antagonists and agonists that will basically lower estrogen in the system and kind of make your body think it's in, in menopause, which is great from an endometriosis standpoint because if you don't have estrogen, they're not causing problems and in inflammation in the abdominal cavity, so the pain goes away. But if you are inducing 
menopause, so to speak, with these meds, you're also increasing people's bone loss. So we see more osteoporosis. You're increasing cardiovascular disease risk. You're probably messing with insulin in there too. So there's a lot of side effects with those medications. And there's a couple others like Lupron and some other um, hormonal interventions that can really manage things in in less severe cases. So it's really about management in conventional medicine, uh, not a lot of cure at this point in time. And what are some alternative ways that we can help endometriosis? So it is estrogen dominant. It is clearly estrogen dominant. So anything we can do to balance estrogen in the system is going to help endometriosis. Now, I will say this is one of the tougher ones to manage. That This and fibroids in my practice are the toughest ones to really get a good handle on. But anything we can do to manage estrogen, so that's going to be removing outside exposures. So we, we talked about endocrine disruptors earlier, getting all the extra plastics out, trying to clean up all your cosmetics, cleaning up your cleaning, your um, literally cleaning up your cleaning materials, getting more natural products in your home wherever possible is going to help with outside exposures. And then we need to get detox pathways going in the body. So phase one, phase two, primarily, and how does the liver actually process and get rid of excess hormone. And then we're going to do things like, you know, can we make aromatase work a little bit better and clean out that estrogen and push it to the kinds that have less estrogen activity than other types of estrogen. So there's a lot of biochemistry that we end up in here with. um, But basically it's how do we prevent exposure, clean it out faster, and then support the biochemistry in reducing the amount of total estrogen in the system. Can a woman have both PCOS and endometriosis at the same time? I don't currently have any in my practice, but absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're different, they're different mechanisms, but I don't see it very often. I'd have to look at some research to see what that incidence would be. So how about some other female hormonal imbalances? What if you don't have PCOS, endometriosis, but you still have terribly heavy periods and long cycles? What could that be? That could be progesterone insufficiency um, or like luteal phase defects is another term that we'll hear with that. Um, I see a lot of that in practice where it's just, it's just really bad PMS or some cycle irregularity where things are just not quite in balance. And that can be a shorter cycle or lead to a longer cycle. And they don't have, you can have really long or irregular cycles and not have PCOS. It, PCOS, you have to have all the other pieces, the excess androgens and all of that. So I will sometimes see people who... They just have really hard, heavy periods, and it's not endo and it's not PCOS, but we need to address imbalances between estrogen and progesterone. So what are the things that are going to cause those imbalances? We already talked about one of the biggest ones is stress. If people are not sleeping at night, if you're worried all the time, if you hate your job, that is going to disrupt your hormones. And I'll have gals who come in like, oh my God, I missed a period. And I, am I pregnant? Is the first question. And the next one is, I missed a period. What's wrong with me? Is there some you know, medical condition? I'm like, how stressed are you? What happened about six or eight weeks ago? And they changed jobs or they moved or whatever. I'm like, yeah, or they're planning their wedding. That's the classic one for messing up a cycle. Um, just that increased stress. Again, we talked about this with changing cortisol, we change the other hormones, and we end up with cycle irregularities. So in all of these conditions, I'm going to be going back to the foundations of diet and exercise and lifestyle first and foremost, stress management, and then figuring out, do you have too much estrogen and a little progesterone or both at different times in the month, which is also possible, or are you just not relaxing a little bit? You know, I actually was... at the Institute of Functional Medicine conference this week, and one of the speakers said PMS should really not be called premenstrual syndrome. It should be stand for please more silence because really people need to slow down a little bit in their second half of their cycle and relax a little bit, and that will help progesterone production improve, and that will help ease most of the complaints we see with period onset. And can you have really bad estrogen dominance, but still not present with endometriosis? Absolutely. You can just be stressed out and or genetically. We didn't even talk about genetics, but, you know, we do see this stuff run in families. Endometriosis is, is not just the estrogen dominance. It is those implants, tissue outside the uterus. And so you can be very estrogen dominant and have very hard or painful periods 
But if you don't have those implants, which is what makes it so difficult to catch and figure out, then it is not endometriosis. So they are not inclusive or responsible for each other. And, and certainly just the estrogen dominance is easier to deal with clinically. That goes to, again, cleaning up, cleaning house, cleaning what's coming in, and then getting the liver working, lots of fiber, lots of flax meal to bind things up in the colon and get it out, a good gut microbiome, brassica family vegetables to get the liver clearance of estrogen out, and then, uh, of course, supporting those adrenals and the rest of the hormone production with some herbs and nutrients. What about if you only have the progesterone deficiency? Do you recommend those wild yam progesterone type creams? Those are not my favorite. Um, partially, and this is just my botanical training, could be my, my clinical bias. I don't see them do or produce the results that I would like to see. I know they work for some women, and I just don't know what that mechanism is, why it's working in one gal and not the next. But I find that applying outside progesterone, it's kind of like using the pill in my clinical head, you're, you're applying a cream or you're putting in progesterone into the system, but that's not fixing the underlying problem. And my goal is to always get down to the root. The root of the problem is why do we not have enough progesterone? Are we producing too much cortisol? Is it getting shunted away from progesterone? Are we, are ovaries not doing their job? Are they not getting enough stimulation from the pituitary, right? What is happening upstream? And so I like to go for that. And for me, that means using maca again or looking at some of these other diet and lifestyle factors as to why are we not producing enough progesterone. Because you could take the progesterone, the wild yam and or progesterone cream compounded at a pharmacy or something, but eventually you're going to want to have a baby or get pregnant and you're going to go off of that just like the pill and we're back at square, not at square one. They can actually help support the system in some ways. But we're going to end up having some of the same problems, and we still have to go back to the beginning. I assume you do not recommend hormone replacement therapies. I do. I go back to the same, the same principle as with when I use um, metformin or something in someone with PCOS. In some scenarios, it's absolutely the, the most appropriate thing to do. If I've got someone, let's say, in, the, in a fertility case, that they're, they're getting pregnant, but they're not maintaining that pregnancy, that's usually a lack of progesterone we will put them on progesterone cream to maintain that until they get through the first trimester. There are some very relevant places to use hormone replacement. Um, another would be a menopausal gal or a gal who is in perimenopause, who is not sleeping, who is having hot flashes all day long. I will use all my other tools, all my herbs, my macas, all of that stuff. But if she is still just one of those poor women who just has terrible symptoms, I will do a progesterone, either oral or cream, at bedtime if I can get away with it. And if I, if I can't and that's not even enough, then I will do the full meal deal with estrogen and progesterone. So I, every woman is different. In general, we have some generalities, but the individual manifestation of how things present and what's going on in their life and or what they can do right now, I have to take that into account. And I feel if we don't, we're missing the boat. You know, if a, if a gal is working two jobs and taking care of an aging parent and taking care of kids and, 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 I'm just going to stress her out more saying, oh, by the way, now you have to eat gluten-free, dairy-free, cook everything yourself and never grab and go anything ever again. That I just added to her stress component. I didn't help the scenario. So sometimes it's, again, duct taping things together while we're working on the foundational pieces. And what do you suggest for those women that their doctors gave them a hysterectomy because they either had endometriosis or PCOS or some sort of hormonal imbalance that the symptoms were out of hand? So they got a hysterectomy and their symptoms didn't go away. Sure. Um, it's a common problem. And luckily, it's I see it less often. Um, hysterectomies used to be all the rage. Um, any number of my women over 70 at this point, they have a huge number of them had hysterectomies for anything that went wrong in their 40s or 50s. Um, that's less the case now, but it still happens. I think then that's why that's, that is what happens when we only look at the downstream issues, the end result and what we're seeing in front of us versus thinking about what is happening upstream, what is happening at the very beginning that's causing this whole river and cascade of events down at the bottom. And so we just, we just go back there. It's cool. You had a hysterectomy. 
things aren't all better. Some things are probably better. We just go back and we start working that biochemistry. We're still doing the same diet lifestyle stuff. We may have to do some hormone replacement for those gals if they're having terrible hot flashes and stuff again. But a lot of the times we can manage that with diet and lifestyle and herbal intervention. Um, the other thing I will say, though, is I have had a handful of gals come in who have so much stress and they're carrying guilt and stress about the fact that they may have to have a hysterectomy. And I remind them that I, I know two people who have had hysterectomy parties because having the hysterectomy truly solved 80 or 90% of their problems. And then we cleaned up the rest of it, right? We're doing all the adjunctive helpful things around the side. So I never want to make someone feel guilty if that ends up being their choice or the need medically, because we can help naturally with that situation if that's what has to happen. And I don't think, I think guilt and stress is the root of most of our health problems these days. And how can we better design our lives to support our health and hormones? I love this. This is what I do half the time with my patients is problem solve. How can you do things differently? What is serving you and what is not serving you? Now, we can't change all of our circumstances. I can't tell someone, well, your job sucks. You have to go get another one, right? I, they know that. You can't always do that. That's a really big ask, right? There's all sorts of things you can take into account there. That said, if you have some control over those things or if you are working at a company that is not supporting you, emotionally or spiritually or anything else, can you change your job? Can you think about other ways to um, make the money you need or do whatever? Do you need to go back to school? I've, I've had many people like, oh, I'd like to go back to school. I'd like to do something, this, that, or the other thing. And I just ask them a question. I'm like, so why haven't you? And they're like, uh, they are in that pre-contemplation mode and they haven't even thought of another way to advance. I'm like, why don't you just request a course catalog? see what that looks like. Think about it. You know, um, I have to say the recession in 2008 was a great stimulus for people. It, I had the most depression and anxiety ever in my office because so many people lost jobs, but it stimulated people to think about what else they can do with their life. And I don't want that to happen, obviously, again, to everybody, but it's an example of rethinking and reframing. And that's the big stuff. But the little stuff is also what can you do in your day-to-day? -day? Like for me, I'm running a clinic, I'm consulting, I have two kids, I'm the soccer coach, blah, 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 right? We're all super busy. What can I do to make sure that Friday at 3.15, everything is off and I'm present with my kids and enjoying my life? And Monday through Thursday, I'm running around doing everything I have to do. Okay, how do we do that? For me personally, it's Sunday afternoon, I talk to the fam and I say, okay, what are we making this week? And generally it's me and my husband and the kids are too small, but they will help. They want to try to help cut the veggies, but we literally will cook two or three meals on Sunday. So we've got healthy whole food meals that just have to be reheated and make a salad. So we get to take away that stress from our life. We all have a regular bedtime. I have work I could do until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. I do not let myself do it. It will be there tomorrow, whether I try to get something started or not, and I'm not efficient at night. So just go to bed, get a good night's sleep, because you're far more productive the next day if you're wide awake. So how can you design your life and your day on a micro level and a macro level? For as far as diet goes, is there a different diet that you recommend for, say, PCOS versus endometriosis? Um, yes and no. I mean, whole foods is always going to be the goal, right? So the fewer processed foods, the better. Um, there is some support of doing a low fat diet with endometriosis a, or a lower fat diet with endometriosis. And I typically have a little bit more fat in a PCOS diet, but overall it's going to be whole foods. It's going to be lots of brassica family veggies, right? Cause those broccoli, kale, all that stuff is going to help clean estrogen out of the system. It's going to be lower grain, so lower anti-inflammatory. I want fish and nuts and all those avocado, all those healthy, good oils coming in. So they're very similar. Probably a little more of the anti-inflammatory style on the, on the estrogen-dominant diet. 
Let's talk about feminescence now, how feminescence helps support the body's own production of hormones and how it's different from other maca supplements. Well, feminescence is maca root from Peru, and it has been used for hundreds of years as the whole plant, and it affects the HPA axis, so the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal axis, so really affecting the master gland so to speak, of hormone production and hormone regulation. So it is a true adaptogenic herb, meaning it's working on balance. It can help increase what needs to be increased, and it can decrease the hormones that need to be decreased. And very few herbs actually, you know, can claim that piece of fame. And out of the ones that can, it's like licorice, ashwagandha, and then maca. So we have a handful of herbs that are really good at tonifying or modulating hormones and the the system at large. And so feminescence in particular has been formulated to maximize that potential. And we know that there's 13 different strains or phenotypes of maca root. And generally and, and historically speaking, the indigenous of Peru would mix them all together and take them in or eat them in whatever form they grew in their area. But when we're talking about then concentrating that into many times in a capsule, what you're going to get just with a whole root, it starts becoming very important to know which maca species or strains you have coming in because some increase estradiol. Do you really want to increase estradiol in PCOS or in, in endometriosis? No, we're trying to balance that stuff out. And so that's the form we're going to use in our menopausal women who don't have enough estrogen. In our younger women who are dealing with trying to balance out estrogen and progesterone ratios, we want the strains that are going to be good at doing that. So more of those adaptogenic strains that manage cortisol, that manage estrogen and progesterone production in the body at DHEA level and how we then process it from there, from the adrenals and the ovaries. And so what we've done is find the strains that work with specific stage of life and created the products that match those stages of life hormonally. That's amazing. What the, <laughs> I know It's, it's very just, different than getting maca powder and throwing it in a smoothie. I right? know. Now know. I would be scared to get it now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I mean, for many people, I mean, that's going to, it's going to help with some energy, right? It's still a stimulant and it's going to be an adrenal supportive herb and you're not getting it in the super high dose, right? If it's a maca powder, it's the root, it's ground up. It's not super potent, but if that maca powder makes your hot flashes worse, don't think that it's maca that's causing the hot flashes necessarily, right? It may be the wrong strain of maca, and you don't know what that is from the bulk section for that powder, right? Mm -hmm. You're just on the wrong strain. If you get on the right strain, all of a sudden, bam, those hot flashes or whatever are taken care of. So would the Feminescence maca products still have the same benefits for women who are currently on hormonal birth control, or should you only take it without a hormonal birth control? No, I will use it with uh, hormonal birth control because it is not an estrogen or progesterone. It's not a hormone. It supports that production. Um, I will often have gals who are on hormones for whatever reason. And hormones, let's not get too... Oral contraceptives are an amazing birth control, right? So if that's what someone needs right now in their life, then that's what we're going to do. But the maca and feminescence can come in behind, and this would be the maca harmony, obviously, the right one for that stage. It's going to come in behind and support the rest of the system because birth control pills do deplete certain minerals and nutrients, and they do, you know, change the background, what's happening with those hormones. Obviously, that's why they work. So we can still support the system. And I'll, I'll even have women who are menopausal and on HRT, I can still use the maca pause with that HRT. Now, my ultimate goal is to taper one off and bring the maca on and replace it, but we can use them together. Personally, I found that I have trouble sleeping if I take feminescence after 1 p.m., but there's days where mm -hmm. I don't have time to take two separate doses. Is it okay to take two pills at once? Uh, you can, and I, I will with some women. I will say clinically, though, I see much better results if we can get a stable blood level, which means split dosing. So taking it in the morning, taking it later in the day and splitting it up, better absorption, better stable levels of it. But um, if someone just can't do that, and I'm, again, if I'm stressing them out, 
making them split the dosing and then they're missing it half of the time, it's probably better that they get both in at once and we just, we work from there. I'm all about meeting the patient where they're at. And what happens if you forget to take your second dose or you skip a few days? How much have you set yourself back? Probably not a whole lot if it's just been a couple of days. And I usually tell people, like, if it hits 3 p.m. and you haven't taken that second dose, don't take it. Just skip it today. Start again tomorrow because keeping you up overnight because it's a little stimulating, I don't want to do that either. So just skip that dose. Start again tomorrow. If you miss a few days, it's fine. Hop back on it. Now, if you're missing... So I wouldn't say you're setting yourself back necessarily in rebalancing your hormones in the grand scheme of things. But if you are dealing with mood swings or hot flashes or things like that, if you miss three or four days, you're probably going to start having some of those hot flashes again. And But you hop back on, you get the blood levels back up, and things will settle back out again. And what are the signs you need to watch out for for when you need to change from maca harmony to maca life to maca pause? So... The, the switch from Maka Harmony to Maka Life can be a little tricky. So Maka Life is the one that's for perimenopausal women, which by definition, that means maybe you started having some hot flashes or night sweats, you started having some irregular periods, but you are still having periods. So the Maka pause, that's easy. Once you've not had a period for 12 months, you are technically menopausal. And so that's when we would switch over. Your estrogen levels have dropped and we need to support some estrogen in the system with the macapause so that we have a reduction of any menopause symptoms, but we're also then protecting your bones and your heart from that lack of estrogen in the system. The maca life is our trickier one. And so if people are having clearly more irregular cycles or get some hot flashes, then done, switch over to the maca life. Um, but sometimes you can get a little gray in there because some women can start perimenopause at 42 and others don't start until they're 52. So it's not just a clear at this age switch. So it's really about what's going on for that gal. But as long as she's having regular cycles, I have her on the Maka Harmony. And I've never had really regular cycles my whole life. So should I continue mm -hmm. with Maka Harmony or wait for a hot flash? <laughs> I would say yes. If you know that you've never really had super regular cycles, they're as regular as they've ever been, then I would be looking more at the symptoms of the hot flashes and things like that, but also a change in what you've come, what has become your normal. You know, so if, if you've had slightly long or slightly shorter, it's pretty normal for you to miss, you know, one month and then it comes the next month. And so it's, it's your normal. I would be looking for a change in your normal as your first clue that or some blood work that I will often, if someone, if we're not sure what's happening, you can always get an FSH or LH level and just kind of see how well are those ovaries listening to the brain and FS, FSH levels that are climbing would point us to, Oh, maybe you are starting to get a little perimenopausal and we can switch you over. Okay. I know like for some women periods start off irregular when they first get their first cycle, mm -hmm. but how long should we wait or what specific symptoms we need to look out for before we give our daughters feminescence? Generally speaking, we don't recommend feminescence until someone's at least had their cycle for a full year. I will sometimes wait a little bit longer as long as nothing severe is happening. It is normal for periods to be irregular the first year or two of menarche. It, that makes sense. The body is like, what is going on? It's trying to figure itself out. So unless I've only had one young gal who I started a little earlier than that because her PMS was so terrible and she was missing school and like couldn't get out of bed and all that other kind of stuff. But typically a year to let things settle down, get some normalization, let the ovaries in the brain figure out their communication process and get to know each other a little bit better. And then I'll initiate the feminescence if needed. Can I add a caveat to that, Kat? Of course. The... <laughs> I would say one of the biggest things, though, with my younger adolescent or teenage gals who are newer to periods in general, it's not a feminescence or maca deficiency necessarily if they're having some issues. Most of my adolescents, the first questions are, are they drinking any water? So are they hydrated? Because uterus is a muscle. If it's not hydrated, it's going to cramp and spasm, and it's going to make your period cramps terrible. So they've got to be drinking water and magnesium. It's such a common deficiency. 
So those are my first go-tos in talking about nutrition with adolescents, which is hard because they're not really ready or wanting to hear it most of the time. But you got to cover those bases first. And then if we're still having problems, I'll think about feminescence and some of the other pieces. And what are your thoughts on Vitex? I have always historically loved it. I still use it. It helps raise progesterone levels, and it can be a really helpful addition sometimes. Um, one thing alone, if someone's more complicated, is not enough. So I will sometimes use Vitex with feminescence or occasionally Vitex alone in some instances. But but um, honestly, and that's one of the reasons I, I decided to consult with um, feminescence in a company is it has honestly replaced most of my other hormone herbal products, all the combo products with three and four different herbs and five different minerals in them. I hate to say it sounds so simplistic now, and it's not. Hormones are not simplistic, but feminescence has kind of replaced most of my other combos and herbs because it's so wide-reaching and affects so many different systems, and it's a single herb. So whereas like when I use like what I call a kitchen sink formula with a little this and a little bit of that, if someone has a bad reaction to it, I don't know if it was the ashwagandha, if it was a Vitex, is it the Dong Kwai? Like what did their body not like? And so it makes it more complicated. And what about lowering DHEA if it's excessively high? Um, yes. I mean, because that's what we're affecting that whole, that whole system. Uh, usually if we're talking about too high a DHEA, we're often, we need to rebalance the system. Why are the adrenal glands making so much DHEA and, or why is the pituitary telling them to do that? Um, so there's that piece and that's where the feminescence is going to help. But then I also, I'm going to think about detox. What is happening downstream? Why are we not getting rid of it? Why is it not getting converted and moved out of the system? So I would think about, you know, gut health. Is someone constipated? Are they resorbing those hormones? And so things are not getting out of circulation. So gut health, um, whether or not they're having bowel movements regularly, how much fiber is in their diet to bind stuff up and get it out and help the liver, and then some specific liver support to help kind of clean house and get things moving. And that's back to those brassica family or DIM, um, calcium deglucurate, all of those kinds of things. Can you give us like an example with the foods and any supplements for like a typical day for someone with PCOS, what they should eat, how they should handle themselves? My typical PCOS gal is we're going to have had a conversation about how to address stress through in their life, whether that's a meditation practice in the morning, even if it's only five or 10 minutes in the morning. I also like to have five or 10 minutes as you go to bed at night so that you get into a really deep restorative sleep. Um, they will have figured out or we've worked on where they're going to put some exercise in. So, and it's not just aerobic, which so, so many women love. I want the resistance in there because that resistance, even if it's yoga and it's body weight resistance, that's going to do so much for insulin, how insulin and blood sugar move through the system because that skeletal muscle is hugely important on that piece. They're going to hopefully... They're going to be doing one of two things, depending on their situation. They're going to be doing a reasonable Mediterranean-esque style diet, so lots of whole food, lower carbohydrate, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or they may be on more of an intermittent fasting style. I'm a big fan of the 16-8 or even just missing breakfast and, and just doing water and or black coffee until about noon or so and having an eating window of noon to 8 and just uh, reducing their overall intake and when they're eating, because there's quite a bit of research on intermittent fasting, um, improving insulin resistance and getting people off that diabetic ledge. And I, I see it all the time in practice. Um, and so we will have already talked about how are they going to accomplish that? Are they going to do food prep? Are they going to use a, a meal service? Like what's, what does that look like for them? And then they will probably have gotten up and taken a morning dose of feminescence, and they may or may not be on some salt palmetto. They'll probably be on some cinnamon or a green tea, like blood sugar support formula and magnesium. If we are dealing with estrogen dominance, I may have a little bit of liver support in there, whether it's our um, pH quintessence alfalfa product that helps with some gentle detox or like the, the uh, DIM or some of the other things that I mentioned earlier. So I try to do minimal supplements, but you know, depending on the case, we have to be more or less aggressive. They're going to, let's see, we talked about exercise, and then later in the day, they may have another dose of some supplements, 
and they're going to then have a good sleep hygiene routine. Um, that's often when I like to dose the magnesium because, again, it supports that really nice solid come down at the end of the day. I usually want people to turn screens off about 45 minutes before bed, um, read a book. They do still exist. And just have a routine. Drink some sleepy time tea, have a bath, whatever it is. Do a little bit of a hobby and just feed yourself for a moment or do some meditation again so we're supporting our normal circadian rhythm. And, again, it's all about that stress management if we really want to balance out hormones for a PCOS gal. So that's what I think a typical day would look like for most of my gals. A lot of women with PCOS now have started doing keto. What are your feelings about the keto diet for PCOS? If it is done well, it can be great. (laughs) If keto gets mistaken for Atkins, and there's no good carbs in there, then we are off in a whole nother area, and that is not beneficial. It's pro-inflammatory. I mean, it has all sorts of problems. So I think keto is really, really helpful to stimulate and get people off a plateau and losing some weight. I mean, you reduce your carbs, you're going to, right, just by the what ketosis does and makes you tap into fat stores. So I will do regulated time timed like you know for five six weeks or whatever only uh ketogenic diets that you know are 20 grams of carbs a day but i won't keep people there forever or for much longer because you need your vegetables you need your fiber and those are carbs so i'm usually having people marry a ketogenic and mediterranean kind of together so that we're watching how many carbohydrates or simple carbs or even, you know, the total carbohydrate load, how much is coming in, but we are not restricting beneficial vegetables and fruits. Because I also heard that you need a little bit of either resistant starch or some healthy carbs before your period starts. Absolutely, which is why I say kind of lower grain, not no grain. I find most people, A, they can't, they can't maintain a diet forever that's no grain. Your body just wants it. But yeah, you want you want a little extra boost of carb. That's why people crave them before their periods. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, so a little boost of some of that resistant starch or something that's a little more available. It go it it does help the system. So some you know quinoa, brown rice, you know something like that is is going to be helpful. And I also find by not completely restricting that stuff, people have a tendency to be more compliant and be able to maintain these diets much longer. And I hate the word diet, maintain this nutrition plan for a much longer time. Because as soon as I tell you, you can never have this, that is all you're going to be thinking about and all you're going to want. So, okay, just to clarify, cheddar cheese cups with bacon, whatever on top, that's not healthy. That's not the right keto. <laughs> not exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> the dairy is not all that helpful. If you're going to do the dairy, make sure you're getting organic, right? Because that's one of our big outside sources, estrogens and toxins storing fat. And so if you're getting dairy, make sure that's organic. Um, so I do want to watch how much of the dairy is coming in. And like I said, the hardcore keto can certainly be used in the short term. It does. I will prescribe it for people to get them off a plateau or get some weight loss going. But then we have got to get the good stuff back in there. So you can have the poached egg or scrambled egg with some greens and onion and whatever sauteed into it and one slice of bacon, but better would be a chicken sausage. Yeah, I would say no bacon. I don't think bacon. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe if you get the nitrite free or something. Yeah, yeah. Or you can go to your, get to your local farmer or, you know, I live out in the country, so I have access. <laughs> Not everyone has access to their farmers. Yes. But even with the dairy, I found when I tried keto, it did not work for me. But when I tried it, I used from the Pennsylvania Amish. I would get the, mm-hmm. the dairy from there and all that stuff, but still it gave me like a reaction when I had the acne, I was a little more swollen. Right. So yeah, you've got the fat and the and the issues with just dairy and whether it's clean or not. But then you also so many people just have dairy issues. It's kinda of, it's pro inflammatory. It's not great with acne. So it's not gonna probably be a PCOS gal's best friend. That yeah. and gluten, unfortunately, probably need to be minimized or removed wherever possible. And what do you think about alternate grains like spelt? I usually find it to be the same problem. I mean, they have lower gluten, 
but they're still a grain. So if people do not have a gluten intolerance or a gluten sensitivity, or of course not celiac, then spelt might be okay. That might be fine. But it's like the dairy you mentioned. Like even though you got super clean, great stuff, it's still you were sensitive to and it didn't help you out. So I'll have people challenge it and try it. I usually want people to eliminate stuff for about three or four weeks. And then by all means, test up something Eat it once or twice in a day. Don't repeat it after that. Watch yourself for 48 hours. If you don't have any problems or constipation or head, head fogginess or whatever, then that can go back in, hopefully on a rotation. It doesn't become a mainstay, but it's like, yeah, it can be in the mix of things. So I encourage people to figure out where where's the limit and what does your body manage. And some of my patients, that kind of thing is not even a problem. And other people, it is a problem, but they may have some underlying gut issues or something that we need to deal with. Mm-hmm. And what do you feel about coffee? Because I find when I have it, it makes me more stressed out. Like I can't handle any stress when I have coffee. So some of that is just genetic. Some people just don't have the enzyme systems that clean out caffeine and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. So there's a couple of different things that can be happening. So some people are just never going to be good friends with coffee. Some people, I mean, that coffee and caffeine, it does mess with hormone systems. So if if something is still a little out of balance or your liver detox systems need a little bit of support, that may be necessary so that you can tolerate a little bit of coffee. Generally, though, if someone's having a lot of hormonal issues or estrogen dominance, I want the caffeine. It's not even the caffeine. It is coffee. Sorry to pick on coffee because I am a coffee drinker. Um, but it's really the coffee that is the, the problem and usually has to get uh, taken out. But I usually think when people tell me they can't drink coffee at all, or if they have coffee after 11 in the morning, they're not going to sleep that night and, or they're a lightweight, they can only have one drink and they're blitzed. Then I'm thinking liver and like, what do we need to do over there? And sometimes it's not liver. It's just, that's their genetic makeup. Um, and they just need to avoid it. So feminescence, does it have products for men? Yes. So our, our flagships are obviously the Feminescence Maca products for women in, in the three different stages, the Maca Harmony for women of reproductive years, Maca Life for perimenopause and macapause, which is for menopausal women. But just like there's strains and phenotypes of maca that push up estrogen or decrease estrogen or whatever, there's also some strains that support men's health. And obviously, you don't want to be taking one that's going to increase estradiol if you're a guy. But we have our Revolution Pro, which is the strain specifically formulated to help support androgen or testosterone production in men and support their overall wellness and longevity. And so I have some younger men on it. I have men whose partners are in the middle of kind of fertility stuff. It'll help maximize their potential. And then, of course, my older men, I will also have on it. Sometimes instead of the ginsengs and all of that kind of stuff, the Revolution Pro just supports that general sense of well-being and balance in the system. And probably a lot of that is because of that cortisol balancing, just like for women, those stress hormones, they enter, they cause all sorts of problems downstream with the sex hormones and the testosterone production. So those are our, our maca lines. And I mentioned really briefly the pH quintessence, which is a alfalfa product um, that all the allergens and grass things are all taken out of. And it is extremely nutritive. So people who don't like eating all those green veggies, I will use this as a support. And it's also a very gentle liver detox. So those are kind of the ones I round out with my hormone and kind of cleaning house protocols. How can everybody reach you and get more information on Feminescence as well? Sure. So um, Feminescence.com is the easiest way to get uh, information on all the products. Um, that's also where you can find me. I'm on the medical team for the company. So if people are using the products and have questions or problems or not sure what dose to take or whatever, we offer a free consult with um, one of the two of us on the medical team to help support that. Um, we, we think it's really valuable that people have some advice when needed and practitioners are not always in people's areas for quick access. So that's that. And then my clinic website is meridianmedseattle.com. And I, I have a private practice in the Seattle area. And we usually try to post some blogs and put out some information on our website as well. Do you also see patients remotely? At this time, I don't. My um, patient contact and customer contact is through the Feminescence and the medical team. Um, I'm always looking at how, how to do that. Um, 
I find as a licensed naturopathic physician, uh, I'm held to some telemedicine laws that are still very much in the gray area. So um, if I'm talking to any person outside of the state, it can be questionable. So I'm still exploring how I can do that and still protect my license and practice for a really long time. But I'm happy to see people if they come to Seattle. Awesome. So thank you so much, Dr. Mona, for being with us and giving us all this great information. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you made it this far, I'm sure you found some benefit to the hard work that I put into the show. Show your support by subscribing to the podcast. Leave me a voicemail question or email me at thehealthfulgypsy at gmail.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you. Be sure to join the Facebook group. You can find all that information in the show notes and my website, katkatibi.com. We've mentioned feminescence and maca harmony a lot on this podcast. That's what I take, maca harmony. So if you're interested, head to feminescence.com and you can get 15% off a single pack of supplements such as feminescence maca harmony. Enter promo code CAT15 and this only applies to single pack supplements, but they also have other great deals that you can check out, such as their subscribe and save. Hey friends, so obviously you are totally into podcasts. Here's another cool podcast that you will probably really enjoy. The I Tried It podcast explores topics from health, wellness, beauty, lifestyle, and spirituality. The host, Kristen, embraces her role as a non-expert and she shares honest stories and first-time experiences with guests. So be sure to check it out today. The I Tried It podcast may even inspire you to try something new. This podcast is for informational, merrymakings, and metaphysical purposes only. Statements and views are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kakatibi, disclaim any adverse effects by the use of information you may have heard. Opinions of guests are totally their own. This podcast does not endorse statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications, credibilities, or sanity. Individuals may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to on the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, consult with a licensed medical physician, not just the spirit of your ancestors while on ayahuasca.